support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDW, we get that migrating your business to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't want to do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDW's experts can help you simplify the transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDW. People who get it. Find out more at cdw.com slash Tech. Introducing Built to Last, a new podcast by American Express. I'm Elaine Welteroff, and I'm excited to host the debut season where we will be deep diving into the stories, history, and continued legacy of small businesses that shape American culture. Through these important conversations, we'll hear how the Black business leaders of our past have inspired today's Black-owned small businesses and communities. Join us for the debut season of Built to Last on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. And if you checked it out, please give it a good rating. It's a wonderful podcast. Water is one of the biggest driving forces of life on Earth. It's been incredibly influential in human history from the time we were hunter gatherers looking for fresh sources of water to the uh, uh, agricultural revolution and building bigger and bigger cities eventually having plumbing uh, the way that it changed sanitation uh, irrigation and what is the what's the future of water. Are we going to have enough of this stuff? How can we make more clean, fresh water? I just listened to a very interesting episode, Alchemy, Turning Milk into Water, Sustainable Water Management. And this episode is all about this very candid conversation about water, coffee, industrial practices, sustainable value chain, and social responsibilities with uh, this man, Carlos uh, uh, Galli, who... Uh, whose job it is to make sure that the biggest food and beverage company in the world is leading a healthy and sustainable lifestyle. Incredibly important stuff. You guys are into science. You guys are into learning, caring about the world, caring about our future. This podcast is for you. Check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. Here we are, everybody. We made it. We made it to the end of year one. This is the season finale. One year of the Here We Are podcast. It's been quite a journey so far. I uh, I still get a bit nervous during some of these interviews. Uh, they're, they're still quite an undertaking. And um, But uh, the nice thing is I still get just as excited as I did in the beginning. And I think if you go back and listen to the first couple episodes, um, I, I feel like I've improved a bit as a host. Pat myself on the back for that. Uh, you know, still still learning, still trying to find the best way to communicate some of these ideas and um, and get into uh, some of this research in in more accessible and interesting ways. And stay tuned after the show. I have kind of a special announcement about the the upcoming year of the show. We're taking things in um, in an additional direction. Same show, just with a, a 
bonus. So stay tuned afterwards, and uh, we'll talk about that. Um, but for now, thank you for listening, and enjoy the season finale of Year One, the Here We Are podcast. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I uh, am in, well, I've been in Portland, Oregon, uh, hanging out. Uh, and I decided to drive down to Eugene to meet with Michelle Scalise Sugiyama, who is the, uh, she is a, a teacher and researcher in the anthropology department, the University of Oregon, and part of the Institute of Cognitive and Decision Sciences. Hey, Michelle. Hi. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for, uh, thanks for um, coming on the program. I'll have you just get the mic just a little closer to okay. your... Uh, one of the many. I, I always, I always prep the guest with with ten minutes of uh, of <laughs> things they need to know, and then uh, and then yeah. I always forget one little thing like that. Um, so you do some very interesting uh, work, and I think this is um, my guests are going to be uh, very interested in this stuff because you use. Um, you use storytelling, and it, you're an anthropologist. You find records of of stories, basically, and, and kind of use storytelling as a window into our ancestral past, in a way. Um, you could How say do you that. It? Um, well, my... you could say that. I clearly am saying it a bit off. Why don't you? Uh, no, I think the, I think the stories do. I think you can use the stories for that. Um, in fact, I've used um, forager oral tradition to investigate um, what warfare was like. Um, in forager societies, um, because one of the things they tell story about is um, battles um, and raids and um, well, people getting captured. Stories, exactly. That's the really exciting stuff. Um, and so you can reconstruct some of the tactics they used from the stories, because the stories are documenting mm. um, those those tactics that were used um, and things like. You know, were people captured? How many people were killed? Um, where did the attack occur? Um, things like that. Um, so you can use the stories to reconstruct the, the past. Um, There's probably varying degrees of reliability when, say, you have like a blind person reporting on on war. Yes. Or whatever. Um, it, I, so how do you... You must have to, you probably, what do you compare a bunch of different stories in the time period around the same... Well, one thing you can do is you can look at um, ethnographic accounts of warfare, and and then you can compare those to the you know, the tactics reported in those um, ethnographic accounts. You can compare those to the tactics reported in the stories, and you can see if they're consistent. So that's one check. Um, and then you can also um, look for cross-cultural patterns. So if you see that the same tactics are being used um, cross-culturally, uh, or they're being documented cross-culturally in or- oral tradition, then that suggests that they, these tactics are indeed being used because otherwise how would you account for that coincidence, right, that everybody's using the same tactics? Mm. Um, so, yes, you have to exercise caution, um, but and you can't you know, use every story as a window on the past. Um, but um, if you're careful, then there are certain things that stories can tell us about the past. Yeah, it's interesting to pick up on um, even some seemingly 
bizarre trends. Like I, I saw you've uh, you've done a little bit of work on cannibalism in the past. Well, that was in the context of monster stories. Um, so one of the things I came across, I forget what I was researching at the time, but I kept coming across these anecdotal comments by forger parents that they tell monster stories to their kids to frighten them and to make them <laughs> obey. Um, and then sometimes it would actually say what exactly they were trying to get the kids to do or not do. And, and there were patterns. Um, one was um, to prevent them from wandering off from camp, um, especially at night, which obviously could be dangerous for a small child. Um, another reason they would tell them these scary stories is to get them to stop crying, get them to be quiet. Um, and again, if, especially if you live in an area where warfare is a problem, then crying children at night is right. potentially problematic. Um, and then another pattern I found is um, they'll tell these monster stories to prevent children from eating up the food while their parents are away hunting and gathering. Um, so children, older children, are typically left in camp. Right? Babies that haven't been weaned are taken Women take them with them when they mm -hmm. go gathering. Um, but older children are left in camp. And um, at first, this didn't make sense to me. And then I thought, oh, well, wait a minute. If the parents go out hunting and or gathering and they come home empty-handed, then they need calories to go out searching for food again the next day. And so they can't have their kids eating up all the food. Um, so they'll tell stories about monsters that target disobedient children, hmm. um, children who run off from camp, away from camp, um, children who eat food when they're not supposed to. These spoiled that, kids with their eating of the food. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so, um, and so um, in some, some stories, um, the monsters are cannibals. And so that's how I got um, oh, that. that's what it was. If, yes. If, well, because I, I saw, um, so I, I was trying to watch a lecture of yours, and it was, yeah. it was this. I, I don't even know where I found it, but it was, it was, it was hard that the sound quality wasn't very good. So, yeah. I, so I may a few things may have been lost in translation. Oh, okay. yeah. But, um, but you you pointed out there was there was um, cannibalism would come up in a few different areas. One was warfare. Yes. And that's that's what made me, the connection in my mind. Gotcha. And um, yeah. and nutrition and and. And then eating of like spirits or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was really bizarre. Yeah, it does come up in the context of warfare. Um, uh, typically, uh, enemies are demonized. Those people over there are cannibals. Right? Mm. Um, well, I, I shouldn't say typically, but often. Um, but I was looking at it in the context of these uh, ogres. Um, that parents scare their children with, mm. um, and so they're typically ogres that <laughs> eat children who disobey their parents. <laughs> So, so do you do you ever when you're looking back through all this stuff because it must it must be impossible not to make some kind of modern day comparisons here and there to like you know with parents trying to like scare the kid like my parents would always say uh, you're going to go to jail if it, like I'd be five or whatever and if I didn't buckle my seatbelt the right. police were going to take me to jail yeah. which is why I think I still have an issue with police officers today. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I don't know if parents do this today, but um, and I didn't do th this with my kids, but I remember when I was a kid, people would talk about the boogeyman. Yeah, you know, yeah. Don't do that or the boogeyman will get you. So there are parallels in modern societies. Um, but actually, in modern societies, we have kind of the opposite problem, which is um, children are scared to go to bed. And so we have to read them bedtime stories to soothe them and get them to drift off to sleep. And I think that's because this is a topic I've been exploring um, in the last few years, um, 
you know, why, why do we tell bedtime stories in modern environments? Because hunter-gatherers don't tell bedtime stories. I mean, they sit around at night telling stories, yeah. but they're stories for everyone. They're not stories aimed at making kids fall asleep. Um, or soothing them, mm. say it's okay. You can, you know, you can go to sleep. Yeah, um, back in that day, you had to hunt uphill both ways. <laughs> and these kids, <laughs> the kids today, are so um, spoiled with their bedtime stories. Um, well, I think what's going on is that in hunter-gatherer societies, people typically, you know, all sleep in the same room together. And so kids, and you know, kids will fall asleep sitting around the fire at night, listening to the adults talk or storytelling or whatever. And so they're they're safe. They're they're as safe as they could possibly be. They're with the people who care about the most in the world, um, and they're warm. Um, and in modern environments, we put our kids to sleep before we go to bed. We put them in a separate room, and then we leave them there in the dark, and we expect them to sleep eight hours straight or more. Um, you know, through the night without, um, you know, any adult present. Um, and so this modern sleep environment is just filled with cues um, that the child isn't safe. There's no, a, you know, its parent isn't there with it. it the mm. room is dark. There are noises that it probably can't figure out, you know, what those noises are being caused by. So ah. cues of predators. Yeah. Um, or uh, Kids don't understand house is uh, adjusting and no, creaking. Exactly. And a two-year-old, a one-year-old That's is not going to understand that. And so um, a, there's a whole genre out there um, dedicated to calming children to get them to go to sleep. Um, and I've actually, I have a friend who writes children's stories. Um, and I asked her about this, and she's like, oh, yeah. And she just rattled off a long list of books that are aimed specifically at this, at sort of reassuring children, calming them, soothing them. Um, Good Night Moon is sort of classic. Um, where the the narrator says goodbye to all these different good night to all these different things in the room, and a lot of the things that the narrator says good night to are th- are cues of possible threats. Um, so, uh. um, and then the, and if you look at the pictures, huh. um, the the room is just filled with cues of, right. of threats. There's like an animal skin rug in there. There's mm. a picture of the three bears. There's, there's a picture of two bears on the wall. Two or three bears. Um, and there's a window, a big wide open window that someone could come through, you know, to attack the child. The child is left alone in the room, ultimately, um, in, you know, in the dark. Um, and then there's these two, these little mice running around in the room, presumably making noise, right? So once the room is dark, the child isn't going to know what's making that noise, right? So that could be a cue that someone's trying to enter the room or there's a predator out there, um, so, um, so, yeah, so in modern environments, we have the opposite problem, which is children are scared to go to bed. Hmm. Um, That's interesting. It's, it, it's sort of, I mean, there's just a lot of modern issues. Like, you know, every, every kid has attention, attention deficit <laughs> disorder or whatever nowadays, but kids weren't, we didn't evolve in environments where little boys were being forced to sit in desks and get history lessons. And right. That right. sort of thing. Right. Hunter-gathered children play a lot. I mean, they learn through playing, right? Um, and and, yeah. and 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 are they are hunter-gathered children off playing on their own um, as well? Because you say at night, uh, hunter-gathered children would kind of be with their parents and everything at the nighttime. But but because now it seems like um, yeah, I, I remember I would play like RoboCop or like Cowboys and Indians back when you could do that. I used to um, play that too. Yeah, <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, but it wasn't. Yeah. I, you would never be around your parents playing that. It'd be like a you know, if I was with my dad, I'd be playing basketball or something right. like that. Right. Um, it, do you 
are, are there like reports of of um, of of the kind of games that children used to play in hunter gatherer? Actually, that's a subject I'm researching right now. Um, and the ethnographic record is sort of disappointingly barren on the subject. Um, there is some information on, you know, like in the real early accounts of, and there's information on types of games that people play, both children and adults. Um, but there's no systematic cross-cultural study of the types of games that hunter-gatherer children play. Um, it's just little bits and pieces um, sort of inserted um, anecdotally um, in ethnographies. Um, there are a few people who have looked, a few um, anthropologists who have looked at play in individual hunter-gatherer societies. Um, but it, in answer to your question, um, it, it, the, the environment really matters. So if, if, the, if the environment's pretty safe, um, like the Hadza environment, children can wander off from camp, you know, a quarter mile away or maybe even farther. But if the habitat is pretty dangerous um, or if it's hard to navigate for children, like the Kung environment, then they stay pretty close to camp. Mm. Uh, so it just depends. Uh, yeah, because I've been watching, um, have you seen Human Planet on Netflix by chance? No, I haven't. Um, I, and, and, you know, I, I, it's... It's TV, so they're probably taking, you know, editing out the the spiciest kind of stuff to make it more interesting. But I I remember seeing there's like I think it was a jungle episode, and there's these three little kids off going around hunting for tarantulas yeah. to eat, and yeah. and they're just totally off by themselves digging around for poisonous spiders, and yeah. that's like they've been taught to do this. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm, little boys typically are given weapons uh, by age somewhere between age three and five. Wow. Uh, their their dads will make them toy bows and arrows and toy spears, and they start playing with them. Yeah, they start learning from a really early age. Um, yeah, and they they just they hunt small animals or they'll, you know, aim at targets, things like that. So yeah. I wasn't a psycho when I was a kid, but uh, trying to throw rocks at squirrels or no, whatever. No, no. Um, I I I don't know this, but I I bet rock throwing is a human universal. I mean, kids love to throw rocks at stuff. That's, yeah, that's interesting. And, and it makes sense, yeah. right? It's target practice. Yeah, where yeah. were you to uh, tell my parents I didn't need counseling? It just depends <laughs> on what you throw the rocks at, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I was always into um, I was all, it, it, the idea of hunting and just yeah. kind of naturally yeah. fascinated. It, it definitely took... Um, kind of getting older and thinking about things in different ways before I became a little more averse to some of that stuff. You know what I was thinking when I was watching um, your lecture when they are... So, so this is, again, back to cannibalism, and not to dwell on this. This is just Are the, you the hungry? one... The one yeah, <laughs> I'm starving right now. Mm-mm-mm. Um, I... Uh, but some of it was they would... They were stories of people or spirits would turn into animals mm. and and then the animal would attack them or they would be uh, attack or realize they had hunted their own brother or hmm. uh, something like that it, this was your lecture i'm probably poorly yeah. paraphrasing but what, when when i was watching it i was wondering if 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 you think there's a chance that maybe some of these stories were a way of dealing with some of the ethics and morals of hunting. Um, because I, I've seen, again, back to this human planet, a lot of times a lot of these people, they'll hunt and they'll talk about how every time they 
um, kill a whale or whatever. They do some sort of ceremony yes. to like give, to release the spirit or give back, and they make sure everything nothing is wasted, and mm-hmm. and this is like very important for their community. Yeah. Um, this this isn't necessarily your work. I don't mean to ask you. Like, well, it's not my yeah my primary area, but I do um, come across this information in right. you know reading stories and and reading about hunter gatherer life. Um, yes, yeah, so a lot of cultures, yes, they do when they kill an animal, they will perform some sort of ritual um, out of respect. Um, but there's usually a motive, which is to ensure that the animal will um, be reborn again. Or, in other words, so that an, that animal will be available for future hunting. Mm. Um, I I don't know um, if hunter gatherers have any ethical qualms. With yeah, no, I'm not trying to like yeah. get all peed up. I've never, like, I've I, never am, I, I was raised around hunters and everything. Yeah, and I've I'm never like encountered that. I think them. they just assume that that's the way it is, and mm. um, but they want to make sure that they're it's going to stay that way. That there's going to continue to be animals. So, for example, a lot of Australian Aborigine tribes perform um, increased rights. So they'll go to a sacred site, and the, the site is typically associated with a species. It might be an animal or a plant. And they perform a ritual, and they just say, okay, we've done this ritual. Now you make more of X, whatever the resource is that they're asking for. Uh, um, and so, um, so Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so, um, so I think the rituals are probably done in the hope that that food will continue to be available in the environment. Right, and this is this is all quite anecdotal, just from my <laughs> viewing of the show. But it, it's uh, it, like something that comes to mind is is um, this this one culture that they hunt monkeys, uh-huh. but often if if an orphan falls out or whatever, they'll take the orphan as the pet. And you know, obviously, they think of the pet monkey as a totally different thing. Yes. Um, yeah. Some I, I've heard like, of. Yes, in some hunter gatherer uh, groups, people um, keeping pets. Um, and I've asked my husband about this too. Of their various South American groups that he's worked with, um, sometimes a family will, um, like you say, you know, they happen to come across a, an orphan baby monkey, so they'll keep it as a pet. And then he tells me, and one day the monkey disappears. Yeah, we've all <laughs> so, seen Charlotte's Web. So they're not pets in the Western. Um, right, sense. right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, but back, back to your work. Um, okay. So. I, when uh, so you were saying how you know I ask you if there's evidence of uh, of what children might be playing and you know say it's frustrating finding some of the records. How how difficult is it for what kind of time frame are you looking at? How far back are you going? How far back? Uh, because the early human records were just like kind of doing taxes kind of stuff, right? Like the very ah. first human records were kind of just like accounting things and um i look at hunter-gatherer oral tradition um so lucky for me lucky for anthropology um in the early um years of the field um anthropologists collected a lot of stories and i think it's because they were interested in preserving the language because the language was were becoming extinct all these different indigenous languages and um and so they were recording um, the stories in a lot of times in the native language, and then they would have a free translation, a literal translation, and then a free translation um, in a lot of these early collections. So this is um, starting in the late 1800s, Boaz's time. Um, so the 18, I think 1870s maybe is some of the earliest dates for these collections. So right about the time that you know, these cultures were becoming extinct. Um, there was a, a lot more emphasis back then on recording the... Um, the, what's the opposite of material culture? The the sort of the, their 
spiritual beliefs, mm. their oral tradition, that sort of thing. Um, intellectual culture is what Rasmussen calls it. Um, who, he was one of the early explorers um, in the turn of the century. Um, anyway, so I work um, almost exclusively with hunter-gatherer or, oh, or forager horticulturalist right. um, stories. Um, so, um, and of yeah, course, I guess the written record was that was like post agricultural for the most. Yes, exactly. The earliest um, written texts, like Gil- the Epic of Gilgamesh, right. um, those go back about um, five thousand years. Hmm. Um, and writing was invented just a little, maybe I don't know, five hundred to a thousand years before then, under a thousand years. Um, and yeah, my understanding is it was initially used for. Um, Accounting, basically. Yeah, yeah. They had all that, all those agricultural products, right? They had to keep track of um, all the taxes they had to collect. Um, so, um, yeah, and those, those, so the earliest written texts like um, the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Bible, um, they are coming out of stratified societies, complex societies with agriculture um, and um, domesticated animals. So mm. I don't, I don't look at those for the I most see. part. So, um, just because I'm not familiar with hunter-gatherer stories, but ju- just to kind of see if I can clarify what it, what you're doing is say if you were to take Epic of Gilgamesh and then um, you know Noah's Ark is mm-hmm. a similar story of a uh-huh. global flooding and right and, and so so you see these trends and then you go oh well. <laughs> Uh, flooding was a much bigger stressor for people back then than than modern days. Like like, like the expression "hell or high water." Like, uh, how are you comparing uh, high water to yeah. to uh, to hell? I, I don't know if that's a fair um, analogy of of kind of what you're doing. Yeah. But, well, f- well f- um, no, I'm not really comparing the hunter gatherer stories to modern stories per se. Um, I mean, you're comparing hunter-gatherer stories to each other to find trends. To, ah, okay, to yeah, I see. What... I see what you're asking. Um, yeah, so basically, what I'm trying to figure out is um, when storytelling emerged in human prehistory. Um, I think I figured that out. I mean, approximately, um, and it emerged when in a hunting and gathering context, when all humans made their living by hunting and gathering. So, um, I think. Um, we can safely say that storytelling emerged by about 100,000 years ago. And that's because we know that um, the language capacity was in place by 100,000 years ago because that's when Homo sapiens migrated out of Africa and began colonizing other continents. And so if language hadn't evolved by that point, um, it would have to have evolved independently in hundreds of different human groups, scattered, widely scattered, um, and that's virtually impossible. Mm. And because um, in hunter-gatherer society, storytelling's oral, it's very dependent on language. And so language is a sort of a good um, milepost of when storytelling could have emerged. Um, and then there's other evidence of symbolic behavior emerges about that time, too. Um, so evidence of jewelry and um, these uh, pieces of ochre that have um, regular um, lines, you know, p- patterns um, engraved on them. Um, and then, of course, by 40,000 years ago, 35,000 years ago, we get paintings like in um, Europe, you know, the cave paintings in France and Spain. And then there was one recently found in Indonesia that's actually older than the European paintings. I think it's 45,000 years before the present, somewhere around there. Um, anyways, so I was interested in, first of all, just how old storytelling is, because I, I was coming from a background of literary studies, 
And um, literary scholars assume storytelling is very ancient, but they don't really investigate just how ancient it is. So that's what got me over to anthropology and evolutionary psychology. Um, so then, now that, you know, once I knew that, okay, it emerged when all humans you made their living by hunting and gathering, then the question was, well, what role does storytelling play in hunter-gatherer societies? Um, and I, I think it's basically, um, it's one of the main ways that they store and transmit their accumulated wisdom. They don't mm. have books. They don't have libraries. They don't have external hard drives. They don't have the cloud, right? So where are you going to store your knowledge? Because it's the... Making a living by hunting and gathering is incredibly information intensive. You need a lot of knowledge, a lot of different skill sets. Um, and you have to acquire them pretty quickly by the time you're, you know, 15, 16, 17, somewhere in there. Um, and so the question is, how do you do that? It's, it's virtually impossible to acquire all the information that you need or that would be useful to have by the time, you know, you're in your late teens. Um, so humans acquire a lot of their knowledge through what's called social learning. Um, they share knowledge with each other. Uh, so it's a really important means of cooperation that humans use. Um, and so storytelling is information. Stories have information in them. And they're something that people share. And so then the question is, okay, what kind of information are humans storing and transmitting through stories? Um, and so what I predicted is that um, if it's true that hunter-gatherers are storing and transmitting um, their accumulated wisdom in stories – then we can we can make predictions about what kinds of information about we can make predictions about the patterns in the content that we'll find in these stories. Um, so, for example, one problem um, hunter gatherers have to deal with is hunting. Right, they have to go out and hunt, and so they they need to know about animal behavior and animal characteristics. So you can predict that they'll tell stories about animal behavior. Um, another thing um, that hunter-gatherers, another problem they face is warfare, which I mentioned earlier, right? So you can predict that they'll tell stories about warfare, um, the tactics that people use, um, and um, where places where uh, battles have occurred, where people have been attacked, right? Because you don't want to camp there again, right? If, if people got attacked, you know, on that peninsula over there, um, then maybe it's not a good idea to, to camp there, right? Mm. Um, or to be, extra, you know, post a guard if you camp there. Um, so basically, um, uh, and another problem is child care that, that hunter-gatherers have to deal with. So, and one problem is that children sometimes do things that aren't safe. They disobey their parents, like wandering off from camp at night. And so you can predict that, parent, that hunter-gatherers will tell stories that address this problem. Um, and so on and so on and so on. So um, that's basically what I do is I look for these patterns um, in I, – um, I predict, you know, what pattern might what, – what theme you might find in hunter-gatherer oral tradition. And then I do a cross-cultural um, analysis of um, hunter-gatherer stories to see if that theme is present. Another common problem is wayfinding, right? You have to – when you go out hunting and you go out gathering, you don't want to get lost. Right? You have to find your way back to your people. And so wayfinding is another problem that hunter-gatherers face, and it's another common theme in their in oral tradition. Hmm. Um, stories about um, the well, stories about the transformer character. Uh, so the transformer um, character is um, a, a, um, an ancestral being who um, traveled about the the land that the you know the people now in, occupy. Um, creating landmarks and depositing resources. 
Um, and typically what the transformer will do is he'll come across, you know, a person or it might be an animal and he'll transform that animal into some sort of topographical feature, often rock formations. And so what the story does is it identifies landmarks in, you know, throughout the territory, campsites, um, springs, um, places where certain, um, resources are abundant, like, you know, fish or elk or things like that. Um, so these, Stories. This genre basically provides a map of the territory that you can use. If you've never been to those areas, um, the stories give you a feel for the relative locations of these places, um, how, how far they are from each other, where they're located in relation to each other. Uh, obviously, they don't use miles. They use time, right? Mm. Um, so a little farther on, you know, things like that. Right. Half a day later... So let, let me ask you because it makes it, it certainly makes sense from uh, say you were going to build artificial intelligence and build a computer to navigate around this world on its own and gather new information. It makes sense that you would um, program it to or, or tell it stories of of wars that happened or places where you where you. Um, found resources or whatever but why why the use of fiction you would think if you were building uh, a robot you you would uh, you would you'd want it to be zeroing in on the absolute most accurate truth possible so mm-hmm. so why do you think uh, humans evolved to uh, to use fiction so much a couple of things um, first of all some of the stories are not fiction or they're not regarded as being fiction by the people um, so the emic perspective is that it's not fiction and war narratives are really good um, case um, of this. Um, they typically um, recount actual battles. Um, sometimes, you know, over the course of hundreds of years, may, maybe the battles might get blended. Um, but um, so you might have um, an account that actually collapses, maybe three battles. Um, but the but the tactical information is still is true truthful. Um, so so some of the so the stories are not necessarily fictional. Um, and then the second thing is that um, one of the fictions about fiction is that it's fictional. It's actually much more factual than you would think. Um, um, typically, in a fictional story, um, there are a couple of counterfactual propositions. But everything else about the fictional world is um, the same as the real world, um, unless otherwise stipulated. So when we um, engage, and this is true in modern environments too, when we engage in fictional story worlds, we assume that everything in that story world is the same as the real world, um, you know, that the fictional world has the same properties as the real world, unless it's otherwise stipulated in the story. So for example, Jurassic Park, right? Um, there's one main counterfactual proposition, namely that dinosaurs have been cloned and brought back to life in this, you know, park in Costa Rica. Right. right? Everything else is just like the real world. The people, okay, they're not real people in the sense that um, the they're they're they don't represent people who actually lived, right? But they're people, right. and they have a human psychology, and they they behave just like humans do. Gravity still works exactly, the same exactly. Way. Days are still you know twenty four hours long, so you can make all the assumptions about the real world, um, about the fictional world that you can about the real world, and so you can extract reliable information from those fictional worlds. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're going to teach um, kids what dinosaurs were like, it would be, it would certainly be easier yeah. to teach them that, and it would be fairly accurate yeah. compared to. 
Another interesting thing, too, is in hunter-gatherer societies, in a lot of hunter-gatherer societies, um, the people make a distinction between um, the distant indeterminate past and the more recent historical past. Um, They call the distant past different things. So they might call it distant time or myth time or just long, long ago. Um, And the understanding is that in this time long, long ago, the world was different from the world of today. So things could happen there that could not happen today. Mm. And one of the characteristics of this myth time, this time long, long ago, is that the line between animals and humans is blurred. So animals can turn into humans, humans can turn into animals, humans can understand animals, animals have language, they can talk to humans. Um, uh, so there's this, this idea that um, you know animals were different from the way they are today in that they can assume human form, they can um, speak like humans. Um, and this is a so, cross-cultural um, Yeah, I trend. haven't quantified it, but I've encountered it um, very wide. It, it's, it's distributed mm. widely across forager cultures, yes. Um, and then there's this, another common motif is this, or idea, concept, is that there was a transformation. And the transformer character figures in here. Um, so long, long ago in, in myth time, the world was different in, in some ways than it is today. Then a transformation occurred and the world became the way it is today. And the transformer is, he's not a creator figure. He's, he's a transformer. He took the existing, you know, already created world and transformed it and changed it and created the things, some of the things that we see today, like landmarks, um, or springs or, um, what have you. Um, so that, so, so these, these myths, these stories that are set in myth time. First of all, um, hunter-gatherers um, often distinguish between stories that are set in myth time and stories that are accounts of the more recent historical mm-hmm. past. So they make that distinction. And so they take the, the, the story set in myth time with a grain of salt. Um, they understand that there are things that happen there that couldn't happen in the world today. Mm. Um, yeah, so they don't, they don't believe that um, animals can talk now. Right? They wouldn't go up to a moose and start talking to it, um, even though in a story from myth time, maybe the moose does talk. Right? Mm. Um, and and what, what do you think the function of, of the, those ideas might be? Just um, Well, it, I mean, it's, it, there's probably no one answer to that, and yeah. it probably varies from culture to culture, but um, fiction is, is pretense, um, and pretense comes online at about 15 months. Um, and the, the ability to understand when someone is engaging in pretense. And then somewhere between 18 and 24 months, kids start um, engaging in pretend play themselves. But, but at 15 months, they can understand when someone else is pretending. You know, say you pick up a banana and pretend it's a phone, right? Um, mm. They can understand. And, um, but really what's coming online is the ability to reason counterfactually. Um, and the ability to reason counterfactually is, underlies a whole host of abilities that humans have. For example, mental time travel, being able to think about the future. The future doesn't exist, um, and so it's counterfactual. And so when you think about the future, when you think about what, what I'm going to eat for dinner tonight or where I'm going to go on vacation you know, over winter break, um, you are reasoning counterfactually. Um, when you're thinking about someone's mental state, you're, you're reasoning counterfactually because you can't actually see what they're thinking or what they're feeling. We can make pretty good inferences, but we can't actually see it. So, uh, you know, see inside their mind. So that's counterfactual reasoning. Um, and so, um, so the, the, the function, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't phrase it as the function of fiction. 
Right. I would phrase it as the function of counterfactual reasoning. Counterfactual reasoning also enables us to innovate, to invent things. Because when you invent something, you are imagining something that doesn't exist. Right? Mm-hmm. It's counterfactual. Um, and um, so that's that the ability to think counterfactually um, is what enables us to do a lot of different things that, that we do that distinguish us from other species. Um, that's, that's so interesting that, I, I mean, that makes sense that it's used as, um, you know, kind of a simulation tool. Yes, yes, definitely. exactly. But, um, uh, but to think that at such a young age, um, children are doing this. It's mind blowing. Yeah. And, and it, so, so this comes online, you know, year and a half or so, and then, and then kids get very, very imaginative, right. very quickly, right. and then and then this kind of peaks a little bit and dies down a little. Do you, do you think that's a modern thing, or do you think that we're just kind of set up to once we start getting older, we start kind of zeroing in on more practicalities or whatever, and we don't do well, as much kind of pretend. Well, as we get older, we tend to have more responsibilities. We get married, we have kids, we have jobs, and so we don't have as much time for play. Right. Um, in hunter-gatherer societies, um, adults do play. Um, they play games, um, but obviously they don't have as much time for play as children do. Um, play is, um, I think, widely regarded as being an adaptation for um, acquiring skills and knowledge sets that are needed later in life, not just in humans, but in, in other animals. Um, and um, in humans, um, I think storytelling um, can be seen as a kind of play or a leisure activity. And um, you, you mentioned the word simulation. And I think that's basically what, um, what storytelling does for us. It's, stories are simulations of mm. human experience. And so they enable us to acquire experience vicariously, um, Instead of you know directly, which can be costly, it can take a lot of time. Um, it can be really dangerous. It's much safer to learn um, about how leopards attack from a story, <laughs> right? <laughs> then watch it on the Discovery Channel. Exactly, to find out exactly. On your own. So it's better to you know yes right. experience that through a simulation of right, a leopard right, attacking right, right. someone than to witness it personally or experience it personally. Mm. Um, it's also incredibly efficient. It enables you to acquire a a lot more information than, than you could through direct experience. Hmm. Um, and it's also um, efficient in that if we were completely dependent on acquiring our knowledge through direct experience, we might not acquire the experience we needed by the time we needed it. Um, so we might not learn how leopards attack, um, you know, by the time we needed to know, right? <laughs> right. right? Um, or yeah. I should have paid attention in <laughs> hunter-gatherer school. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> So, so I think, um, you know, role playing and storytelling, there's a, a lot of similarities between them. So pretend play where, mm. um, kids pretend to be pirates or pretend they're, you know, cowboys and Indians, um, or doctors, in the, or doctors, or in- anything, right. Yeah. Um, they're, um, that, that's really very similar to listening to a story. Um, the main difference is that when you're engaging in pretend play, you're acting out the story. So it's more like drama, mm. right? Um, it's sort of a self-directed drama. Um, or a cooperative because you're playing with other people, right? And everybody puts their two cents in. Let's pretend, you know, X. No, 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 let's pretend Y. Um, and um, whereas when you're listening to a story, um, you're just, you're sort of watching the role playing. You're, you're watching the characters basically act out the story. Um, but it's the same thing. It's a simulation of experience. Hmm. 
Um, it, it, well, it, it's interesting from a simulation point of view because take dreams, for example. You'll have some dreams that are... I, I, I might... I might have a dream tonight and just relive this conversation mm -hmm. or, or maybe ask a few different questions or something like that. And it's very in line with mm -hmm. kind of reality, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. um, and, but then I'll have other dreams as you know, I'm being chased by a clown or, you know, right. aliens or whatever it might be. Right. And, and um, it, it's, it is a little bit harder to discern, um, the kind of evolved function of, of what of what those more extreme um, imaginary um, simulations are for exactly. And do you, do you think some of it has to do with? So if I'm trying to convey information to you, like they say, if you're trying to memorize a grocery list or, or learn something that, or, mm -hmm. or memorize people's names or whatever to, mm -hmm. to make up kind of this extreme story mm -hmm. um, and it helps you remember it, it's, mm -hmm. it's more a bit more salient. Do you, mm -hmm. think, do you think that was possibly part of what's helped stories um, function? Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm asking a clear enough question. Well, try phrasing it another way, and I'll, I'll see what I can do with it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we are having fun. <laughs> um, it, so it just so you see, like um, monkeys uh -huh. play fighting, right? And and you kind of get that. Okay, they they need to simulate this play fighting because eventually they're going to need to fight and mm -hmm. and and you see you know you you notice your dog dreaming and uh -huh. flinching its legs and it's probably like chasing after a squirrel or something uh -huh. like that right but and, and all of that stuff makes all sorts of sense but uh -huh. why and I also understand the idea of looking back and being like well back in myth times mm -hmm. there there used to be um you, you know the animals used to be humans and and mm -hmm. just because maybe people didn't know any better or whatever but but why something like going back to what we talked about in the beginning where mm -hmm. they're they were hunter gatherers are trying to scare children with mm -hmm. things that they know aren't aren't true um well the, i mean some of them believe in these monsters and some don't there's variation oh, yeah um and there are other monsters that they believe in so for example in the pacific northwest um the uh, one um some of the tribes believed in what was called wild man um and what it looks like to me is that hunter gatherers are very empirical um and they, i mean they track right they they track animals by looking for sign right and um so there's this one story about how these people were camping um along a river and they were on a fishing expedition and they heard this really loud noise and it was not the wind. It wasn't a sound like the wind would make. It, was, it wasn't a sound that any animal they'd ever heard of, you know, would make. And they know the sounds that animals make, right? right? And so they immediately crossed to the other side of the river. And then they just sort of hunker down and, and listen um, and wait to see what happens. Um, and they, they accidentally leave their dog behind. And at one point they hear the dog yelp and then nothing. So they figure the dog's been killed. Um, and so then after a while, things quiet down. And so the next day, um, they go back to investigate and they see these really big footprints. They see a shelter that's been 
utterly destroyed. The dog is dead. And so they conclude that this, it was, this was done by wild man. And so basically they can't think of any other thing, any other entity that could have caused this. And so they posit um, wild man. Wild man did this. And this is, it makes perfect sense, right? Clearly there was an agent there that did something, right? right? right and right. it was dangerous and powerful, and the footprints are very large, so it was big. Um, so they, it's a hypothesis, mm. basically. Um, and um, they certainly have evidence that something, you know, did some terrible damage. Um, and then they respond very cautiously. They leave, and they um, resolve never to camp there again or, and fish there again. Um, so some of the, the upshot of uh, this is that some of these monsters might be explanations of this sort. Right. Oh, right? that's interesting. And it, it, to phrase it as a hypothesis. Yes, yeah, and yeah, it yeah. makes sense to err on the side of caution, right. right? Especially when you have evidence that there is some entity out there that does some major damage. They found the first Bigfoot. Well, that's, I think that's what, where those legends come from. Is really? These, is these <laughs> wild man stories. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Um, not the Western, you know, adaptations yeah, of it, yeah. but but I think that yeah, that might be the root of it. I don't know, but I, that's that's my hypothesis. You know, it's interesting that these stories can persist beyond a time when that hypothesis is then kind of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> proven to yeah. be incorrect. Yeah, that people can still be erring. Yeah, in there. yeah. My guess would be it was maybe a grizzly bear or something like that. But right. they're so good at you know reading tracks that if they found footprints, you know, in this story that I was just telling you about. I would think they would be able to determine whether it was a bear or not, um, or a human or not. Um, but um, but obviously it wasn't Sasquatch, so it had to have, you know been a bear or a human or some other large animal. Right. Um, but uh, yeah. Um, so uh, I want to go back to war for a little bit because you've done um, you've done some interesting um, research with. Uh, trying to understand um, females' roles yeah. in war. Um, could you talk about I, I mean, it, because in a lot of your typical evolutionary psychology or biology books, it's, it's um, all, all these men but usually fighting over women um, in wars or taking right. women in, in, as part of the spoils of war. Exactly. Um, and and right yeah what motivated the i think the paper you're referring to is um the fitness costs of warfare for women um yes so um right most of the theoretical work on warfare um in evpsych argues that it's it's probably a male adaptation um and uh, and focuses on that on how warfare in the selection pressures that warfare exerted on men but as you pointed out women were often casualties in warfare so i thought well Maybe there were some selection pressures that women were facing um, in this in the context of warfare, um, and women were commonly taken captive um, and um, either um, you know taken as wives, so basically forced into sexual relationships. Um, sometimes they were raped um, and then killed. Sometimes they were outright killed. Um, children were captured. So the upshot was, uh, and then of course, their sons and husbands and brothers were often killed or taken captive. And so what I did in that picture is I, in that paper is I just looked at um, different potential fitness costs um, that women might suffer um, in the context of warfare. And I, I just generated a list based on ethnographic accounts. Um, and then I um, surveyed a sample of um, forger war narratives to see if those costs were present. So, um, so the woman herself being killed, uh, the woman being captured and you know forced in t- 
taken as a wife or a concubine. Um, so in other words, um, her, she didn't have, um, she wasn't allowed to exercise her mate choice, right? This, the man is exercising it for her. Um, children being killed, uh, male relatives being killed, uh, male relatives being captured. Uh, because if a woman, w- women's chief protection against um, aggressive males is other males. So if a woman loses husband, father, brother, um, or if she has adult sons, then she's lost uh, an important protector. Um, so that's a potential cost. And also a provider, too, um, mm. because males are doing the bulk of the hunting um, in hunter-gatherer societies. Um, and, um, yeah, so... And females th- would kind of have to decide, uh, basically, whether whether it was worth... It. Obviously, if they're going to be killed, it's worth fighting. Exactly. You need to know. You need Yes, yeah, so we would expect um, women to be really good at assessing... Whether, so in in a, in the, you know the heat of battle when a guy is you know capturing them or attempting to capture them, um, one thing you want to know is is this guy going to kill me or is he going to take me as a captive? So you have to be able to assess that um, and knowing something about the tribe. That's where stories come in because knowing something about your hostile neighbors um, is really useful in this regard. Do they you know tend to just kill everybody, men, women, children, or do they take captives? And if so, do they? Um, have preferences? Do they tend to take women captive? Do they tend to take children? Um, so that if you find yourself in this situation, you can rapidly assess, okay, what are my odds of being killed? What are my odds of being captured? Um, and if I am captured, what are my chances of escaping? Which is another thing. Once a woman is captured, she um, she's in a situation where you know she might not speak the language. She has no kin, no you know, nobody, there might be a few other people from her group if other people have been captured. Um, but she's in this hostile group and she has to make a living somehow. Um, and you know, doesn't have her male kin there to protect her. Um, and so she either, she has to decide, am I going to try and escape or am I going to try and make it here? Um, and then if she stays in that group, then in future encounters between her new group and her old group, she's in a really awkward position. Um, and there are stories about women in this position who um, betray, um, they'll betray their natal group mm. for, uh, um, on behalf of their, their current group, the group, that they, the group they've been captured into. Um, so it's a, a really deli- you know, really tricky situation that many women must have found themselves in and um, would have required um, some diplomatic skills, to say the least. And this is... A, the- Possibly the evolution of Stockholm syndrome. I mean, it it could be that no, no. Granted, that Stockholm syndrome has been documented in modern environments, which are you know different in many ways from hunter gatherer environments. But um, it may have been um, beneficial for a woman who was captured um, to um, if if there was little chance of her escaping then it may have been very beneficial to identify with the captor or with the captor captor's group um, so that she could rapidly assimilate into that group um, because hunter-gatherers are really dependent on cooperation for survival. Um, you need, you need um, exchange partners, um, you know, people that you can call on for food if you're sick or in a woman's case, you know, if she's pregnant, you know, childbirth, the later stages of pregnancy and childbirth, she might not be able to go out gathering, um, so she may need to call in another woman for you know some food. Um, so anyway, so she would have to establish establish um, exchange networks, and so um, yeah, this sort of rapidly identifying with the captor may have been beneficial. Hmm. 
Uh, that's fascinating. And uh, you know, you know what else? Um, I kind of, uh, I guess, along the same lines, a little while, uh, a little bit is um, you. You wrote a little bit about um, about kind of in in our modern era now, females becoming heroes. I saw the piece that you oh, the Huffington that Post. you wrote yeah. about uh, Am I? about what, what's the what's the movie? Oh, oh yeah, uh, the oh, latest the Mad, Mad Max. Max. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I, well, I kind of liked the way that you phrased, um, the idea behind it about kind of, uh, the, the idea of in, in our ancestral past, there wasn't as many female stories probably because of the cost of pregnancy and childbearing. And yeah, another really common motif in, um, forager folklore is the hero, the physical hero. Well, there's physical hero and the culture hero. I focus on the physical hero in my origins of storytelling class. Um, so this is a, a man who is um, exceptionally strong, exceptionally brave. Um, he, basically, he's a really good fighter, um, both, and he's often a good hunter too. So he's good at fighting dangerous animals. He's good at fighting humans. Um, he's very formidable. Um, often has um, ec- you know excellent weapons. Um, uh, he may have a really strong bow. Maybe he's the only man who can actually you know pull the bow. Um, like and Hercules or Tarzan, exactly, or exactly. So, um, so they're guys who are really good at fighting, really strong, very, um, you know, sort of unflappable. Um, and uh, so, the question is, why cross culturally do um, you know cultures um, create this this character? And um, I think the answer is um, warfare. Basically, um, people needed. Uh, groups needed some individuals to defend them from hostile groups, and not everybody's equally up to this task, right? We all have different gifts, um, and some people are really big and strong and athletic and good at fighting, and other people not so much. Um, and so the the hero story sort of um, elevates this this type, um, this male type, and praises him. Um, what a great guy, you know, he was, um, he was so brave. He, you know, he killed 10 guys at, you know, uh, you know, it was 10 against one. He killed them all. Um, and so it's a way of reward of encouraging, um, those males who are able to, to protect the rest of the group, um, and to give them some sort of reward for doing so. Right? Ah, um, so they get the parade, they get the parade, they get, you know, a little status from it. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, and, and so one interesting thing that's happening. So in, so why is he male? That's another question. Why, don't, why do we not see female heroes? And um, hunter-gatherers do tell stories about women who behave, who exhibit physical heroism. Um, they're not that common, and I think that's just due to biological constraints and, and sexual division of labor in hunter-gatherer societies. So um, hunting large game is typically done by men because it's, um, it's very dangerous. It's very, it tends to be very arduous. Um, men may travel, you know, 10 miles or more, um, when they go out hunting. Um, and women can't spare the calories because women, um, once they get married, they get pregnant, they start having children and, um, pregnancy and lactation take a, a huge amount of calories. And so women can't, their bodies can't support pregnancy and lactation and do, you know, arduous labor, like big game hunting. Not to mention, um, it'd be pretty hard to hunt with a baby on your back um, because it's not like you can go to the grocery store, get some formula, and ask, you know, Grandma, hey, can you feed the baby a bottle while I'm out hunting? Right? 
um, you know, babies have to be fed by their mothers, and most women um, of reproductive age are going to have babies that they need to nurse, so they can't nurse another one. I mean, there there are some societies where um, it's reported that a woman might nurse another woman's baby, but for the most part, mm-hmm. um, women don't have the calories to spare to nurse other women's babies. Um, and then, of course, if a woman went hunting with a baby, um, the baby might cry and scare off the game. There's all sorts of problems. Right. right? So guys don't fight well with babies in their arms. Either. Exactly. <laughs> right. And and so women don't do. Um, they don't tend to particip- participate in warfare, and they don't tend to participate in big game hunting. So those are the two spheres in which you have a chance to act heroically, pretty much. Um, and so women just don't have the, as many opportunities. Mm. Um, but there are stories about women um, uh, who. The, the two that I can think of offhand um, involve women being attacked by a bear. And in each case, the woman kills the bear. Um, one is a Lakota story. And um, the people are out picking berries, and a bear comes along, and um, the people all run. Um, but this one woman gets caught by the bear, and she manages to kill it with her um, her knife. Hunter-gatherer women typically have a knife for you know daily activities. Uh, and so she kills it with her knife. And then afterwards, the people give her a new name to sort of commemorate this brave act. So clearly they can recognize heroism in women um, and, um, and appreciate it. Um, it's just that women don't have as many opportunities to display their, um, you know, their physical bravery um, and prowess um, as men do. Um, and, and then there's another story. It's an Inuit story about a woman, an old elderly woman. The people are moving camp, and she's kind of um, she's fallen behind because she's so old she walks slower than everybody else and she gets attacked by a polar bear manages to kill it but with her mitten she has a walking stick because she's so old she's walking along using a walking stick she takes her mitten and puts it on the end of the stick and then she manages to jam it into the polar bear's mouth and kill it that way (laughs) Um, and then she um, butchers it and she has all this meat to share with her group Um, so um, so not only is, um, do we see an instance of female heroism here, but we see an elderly person, right, who behaves heroically um, and is recognized by the rest of the group. Meanwhile, um, the, the, the bear is telling stories about that bear. It's not, <laughs> that's not looking so good for you when you died by <laughs> mitten. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's pretty undignified. Um, and so what you see in modern environments is that a lot of these constraints um, on women that you see in hunter-gatherer societies have been lifted, right? We have contraception. So women can control their fertility. Uh, Baby formula. Exactly. And so women have moved into spheres that formerly were reserved for men. So we have female cops, and we have two female rangers now, right? Um, And and so um, what you see in storytelling, um, in film anyway, which is the main storytelling medium in modern environments, um, is um, the rise of the female hero. Yeah. Um, and so that's what I was talking about in my Huffington yeah, Post blog yeah, about. It's, it's so interesting. Yeah. Um, yep. And so yeah, so if you and, and I, I no, I, I don't know of anybody who's quantified this, but right. I think it would be a really interesting study. Um, but starting with you know the Terminator movies and um, you know Linda Hamilton's character yeah. Sigourney Weaver in the Alien movies. I always enjoyed the Fifth Element. <laughs> Um, yeah, but you can think of you yeah. know a fair number of the Hunger Games. Um, yeah, um, so increasingly you see females cast in the role of the physical hero. That is, uh, yeah, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. I mean, part of me is like, uh, <laughs> I, I, I think, um, I think like the 
action films is is not the best representation of humanity in general <laughs> and it's like part of me is like ladies why are you stooping to to uh the arnold schwarzenegger level yeah. but um but it is it is an interesting um it sh- i mean i think uh, I'm, I'm more proud to see like Hillary Clinton running for president or something like right. that. Well, that's than another like... thing, right? You see women moving into um, spheres of political influence. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's another development. Um, yeah, I just think, it, it, you know, regarding the whole physical hero genre, it's just an ugly fact of life that there are mean people out there. Right. Um, and we have to deal with them. And right, I think right, that's right. what the hero character right. is a response to. Yeah, mm. is that you, you need people in your group to protect you. Yeah, the other yeah, option is point. to just throw your hands up in the air and say, okay, come kill us. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, um, before we wrap up, first off, um, what, uh, what is the uh, charity of the week this week? Oh, yeah, Densho. So this is a Japanese-American um, organization that's dedicated to preserving um, Japanese-American history, um, the, the Japanese-American experience in the U.S., um, particularly the um, experience of um, World War II being relocated to camps. Um, and it's um, of particular interest to me because my mother-in-law was in one of the camps during World War II. Um, so that's my charity. All right, and everyone can go to the herewearepodcast.com website and click on the charity link and find out more from there. And just as we're wrapping up, just since we... I, I, I just... Um, I think it's very interesting whenever um, we can take some of these records of hunter-gatherers and get insights into our past and apply them to kind of modern-day living and modern-day problems. And I, I thought you had a really unique take on... Um, uh, this is another Huffington Post. Oh, okay. Uh, a really unique take on, on the um, police... Uh, oh. conflict going oh, on yeah. because I've because I have had guests on talking about um, race specifically right and right. and the role of race in determining in and out group behaviors and right. and you had kind of a, a, a slightly different take than what I've seen right the territorialism yeah yeah um, yeah so in the research I've done on warfare one of the things I've found is that um, Hunter-gatherers are alert to um, trespassers, strangers in their territory. And um, in some groups, um, you know, they shoot first, ask questions later. If if there's someone in their territory that is a stranger, um, they immediately... um, they jump to the conclusion that this person is up to no good, um, and they kill them. And so... um, in-group, out-group psychology may be rooted in this, that, um, you know, when you see a stranger, they're not part of your group. And um, and the cue is maybe their clothing, um, or in one story, it's snowshoes. Um, there's a group of young men who are out um, hunting caribou and trapping, and they come across these prints in the snow, and they, they say, oh, these, the, the snowshoes are round. This, so these men are from the beaver tribe. And they say, oh, these snowshoes are round. This guy must be a Cree. So they can tell by the, the shape, the design of the snowshoes, that it's not one of their people. And, um, and that it's, and the Cree happen to be their enemies. And so they, they track this guy and they kill him. Um, and so, um, 
yeah, race was probably not one of the cues that. That well, you made <laughs> that, that was to... such an interesting point because yeah. I I guess I'd never thought of in our in our past a yeah. lot of people would never meet someone of a different race or of a different no. skin color or whatever. No. So so I mean uh, although although had it happened it would be a very easy cue probably that they were in an out group um but but that wasn't a, a, a common theme so they'd have to look for more subtle cues yeah, yeah it'd be things like hairstyle clothing um tattoos maybe um different groups had different you know forms of body decoration um and um right and maybe their moccasin their you know whatever their foot gear was mm. um might be made differently by a different group so they could identify them that way um hunter gatherers can identify people by their footprints so um so really? Yes, yes, and handprints too. So, um, yeah, I mean, maybe huh. not every single person, but you know, in their group, but yeah. they can look at a track and say, "Oh, Fred was here." That you know, Fred and Fred was here four hours ago. You know, so, right? Yes, they're incredibly good trackers. Well, I just think when you know, obviously, this is a big problem and it's a big issue, and we should be aware of every variable that's uh, trying to cause it. Uh, if this is uh, something that we that we want to work toward resolving and right. um and and it's interesting to see uh i think like one of the examples that you used was was um an area brought in a lot of out of town um police officers yes. into right. an area and and right. maybe that was more of the the, the problem issue. yeah right um, yes so, yes so um yeah it was a town in florida um that um, they um, they split off from Miami and formed their own city, and so they needed to um, develop a police force. Hmm. And they recruited people from outside of the state. Um, and this was a primarily, I think, black and Hispanic neighborhood. And that most of the officers they recruited, the majority were white, and um, so that complicated matters. But they they were from different states. They were from different cultural backgrounds. Right, right. There were all these problematic um, differences. Yeah. Um, and they and they weren't even from that town. And so, of course, when they go into these neighborhoods, they're not from that territory. They're from a completely different territory. Right. And not to put words in your mouth, this is my own speculation, but obviously this seems very applicable to, you know, overseas involvement and and, uh, uh, and with conflicts over there and trying to, uh, you know, integrate American cultures into other cultures and why possibly that's so much of an issue sometimes. Right. I think the trick is to... When you have people from different groups to sort of override the in-group, out-group psychology, you need to find a common bond Mm -hmm. so that they see each other not as members of different groups but as members of the same group. So that the group that – well, the thing they did at Skateland, um, which I talk about in that post, um, is – so this was a skating rink in Compton um, that was opened in, I think, the late 80s – so the, the the owner, what he did is he he played rap music. It was primarily primarily black neighborhood. Um, so he played um, the music that was popular then, rap music, um, and he knew he was going to be getting gang members, you know, at the rink. Um, and so he had a policy of no no colors, so you couldn't wear anything that suggested that you were a member of a, a gang, right? So trying, I, I don't think he you know was aware of in group out group psychology right, this right. consciously but it was just a brilliant strategy right because then you can't see who's in that group who's in you know who's in group a who's in group b um and then he played this music that everybody loved so they were united around this music so that I, I i mean again i don't know it'd be nice to go you know interview these people but um but i'm guessing that they sort of identified as the group of people that like to roller skate and listen to this music as opposed to oh i'm a crypt i'm a blood Right. Um, it was sort of that that distinction was suppressed. Um, it was overridden by, oh, 
I, you know, I like this music, and everybody else here likes this music, right? So we're all the mem- you know, all members of the same group, uh, fans of this music. That's fascinating. Um, well, thank you so much. Uh, oh, thanks Marshall for having Walter. me. For coming on and telling your story about your storytelling. <laughs> that's funny. That's how I end my class on, on the origins of storytelling. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, it's my story about storytelling. Yeah. Um, so this is absolutely fascinating stuff and uh, really cool research, and I appreciate you giving me your time. Well, thanks for visiting. And thank you, listeners, for being curious. I'll talk with you next week. So there it is, everybody. That's the season finale. That's the end of, of one year. Another great guest. On the Here We Are podcast, uh, this has been an amazing year for me. It's been so much fun. I just last night I had someone come out and see me in Louisville. Who uh, a, a couple came out. They drove two hours to see me in Louisville. Said they had listened to every single episode of the Here We Are podcast, and uh, that makes me feel real proud and real special and i'm so thankful for all of your interest and all of your support and i'm going to uh keep trying to work harder to make the podcast more interesting and and um get more attention for it and work on marketing and all of that kind of stuff too so we get more listeners and more support and uh thank you guys for spreading the word and helping with that And so I wanted to tell you a little bit about um, uh, what's next. Next week on the program, I'm having, uh, I'm going to release two episodes. And I I stopped through when I was in Portland. I stopped through, uh, it's called the Central City Concern. And they're an organization that does um, outreach with the homeless. They do, um, they do housing for the homeless. They do uh, therapy. They do you know, get getting people what they need. They they work on getting jobs. They provide some jobs for people. And uh, next week, I have the founder of the Central City Concern in, in Portland, and then I also have a former addict who now uh, does counseling and works with homeless people that are trying to uh, tackle their addictions. And and we talk a lot about that and and about the history of um, of the homeless problem in, in Portland specifically, but nationwide, we talk a lot about, um, the, how, how substance abuse has changed, um, in, in the last few decades and how treatments have changed. And, and so, so the plan is, is that I'm thinking maybe once a month and, and please make sure and, and give me feedback and let me know what you guys think after you listen to these episodes and, um, hear these ideas, but I'm thinking once a month, what I'm going to start doing is having an episode where I, you know, I have each guest to name a charity of their choice each week. I'm going to start reaching out to some various charities and see if I can find people like this that are that are kind of dealing with um, these social issues that we talk a lot about on the show, um, but they're kind of on, the the people working on the ground, you know, that that are. Uh, with the people or animals or whatever it might be and kind of experiencing this firsthand. And I think this will help. Um, it, one, I think it will will kind of raise the stakes a little bit for some of the stuff that we're talking about. You know, some sometimes it's, uh, it's I have a lot of fun learning about all the weird, wacky quirks um, in our in our psychology and how our how our brains have kind of evolved to 
be uh, not not terribly fit for this world sometimes, and uh, and a lot of times that's um, that's very kind of silly I- ideas when you learn that about yourself. But then um, uh, some of this stuff is also used to tackle really big serious issues that we all are surrounded with by and and live with, and um, and so I think this will provide a new context for some of these ideas and open up um, some new ways of, of looking at uh, our lives and our society and our government and all of that uh, good stuff. So I think it's a good idea. Um, you guys can let me know what you think. Uh, go to the herewearepodcast.com website. You can click on Ask a Scientist. Those emails go directly to me. Oh, I'm just remembering an email from like a week ago that I've got and I forgot to respond to. Um, but so, so once in a while they slip through, but I read it. I just didn't get a chance to respond. So I do read every single one and I respond to everyone as well unless my dumb memory acts up um, and I'm busy with something and, and it gets lost. But usually I should, I should uh, write you back um, soon after. So I really do appreciate that feedback and I really do consider it in um, choosing guests and the various subjects that I uh, choose to go into. Um, and, and speaking of which, um, so there's, there's a couple of things uh, that, that I've gotten a lot of feedback on. One, um, people want to, people have heard me talking about psychedelics um, on other podcasts, uh, well, I did a episode on here with Michael Garfield. That was one of the more popular episodes. It got um, just about the highest downloads, and it's something people are interested in and, and fascinated by. And um, so, I've had a lot of people uh, wondering if and when I'm going to get more uh, more guests talking about that. And I am. I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm in talks with a few different organizations right now to get some neuroscientists and some other people who are actually legitimate scientists doing real um, uh, academic work on psychedelics and their use in therapy and exploring kind of how the mind works. And so I think that's going to be exciting. So, uh, uh, you know, I heard you loud and clear. Uh, So we're going to start doing that. And then another thing, and I'm sorry to disappoint some of you with this. Another thing that often um, I, I get a lot of uh, a lot of questions about is uh, when I'm going to get like futurists on, or like kind of technology people, and, and a lot of uh, people want to hear about physics and get some physicists on. And I do want to do that eventually. I was actually way uh, my initial passion and uh, and. Uh, science was initially sparked by learning about, um, you know, different technology and my interest in technology. And, um, I'm, I'm a bit of a transhumanist. I want to be a robot one day, which that's probably sounds real weird (laughs) to a lot of people. And it's most likely not going to happen, but nonetheless, um, I definitely want to be a robot. Uh, yeah, that sounds weird when you say it out of your mouth, but so I am very interested in that stuff and I'm really interested in physics. I think it's absolutely fascinating. It's just that I think I'm going to wait for another year to get into some of that stuff only because I 
think that we have a long ways to go still with exploring our inner world and our mind and our kind of day-to-day life and and uh, how that works. I, I mean, I, I love reading about um, physics and black holes and that sort of thing. I'm, uh, I'm pretty passionate about that as well. I just don't think that stuff applies to everyday life as much as um, a lot of a lot of what the guests so far have been working on. And so I think that I, I would like to put that first. So I, 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 this is all subject to change. Write me. Tell me what your um, feelings are. Maybe you can convince me otherwise. But I think that will be a um, season three thing is the plan. So good news is already planning out season three. Um, and I'm real excited to keep doing these. Uh, and and bad news is I might not get to all of the topics that you guys want, but we will get there eventually. We're going to learn every damn thing. Everything. Yep, that's possible. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, you guys are awesome. Thanks so much for the support. Um, I, you know, I, I try to limit the time on these intros and outros and, um, and just give you the meat of it. But uh, this is the season finale, so I thought I'd take a little time to connect with you guys and kind of let you in on um, some of the plans and and what I'm trying to do moving forward. So I hope you guys are excited about it. I'm very excited about it. And thank you guys so much for listening. And I'll see you next season, which is next week, uh, with with, uh, two new episodes next week um, for Thanksgiving week. Uh, having uh, people that work with homelessness seemed appropriate. I know people are a little more generous during the holidays, so I'm hoping to take advantage of that and uh, inspire people to help people in need. So, uh, so make sure and tune in next week and let me know what you think. So thank you guys so much. You're the best. I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL, the 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? <laughs> 
devilishly handsome, not even a little bit Italian looking. So get that out of your dumb brain. <laughs> Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Yin Yang Twins. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, (laughs) he spots his dear friend, who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. (laughs) Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. Oh, my God. 